Welcome to T-Smack, home of the T-Smack. May I take your order? Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, and comics. I'm your host, Josh Scar, and as far as the Smackheads go, I am flying solo, but I have a very cool guest with me this week. I have one uh, award-winning director, would that would that be accurate to say? Award-winning director, filmmaker? Short film. Uh, <laughs> I've won awards on my short films. Um, I'm a cinematographer, you know... Um, in the digital realm, um, previous artists, animation. Yeah, my name is Gary H. Lee. I am, <laughs> you know, I was the head of previs on Netflix, uh, Magician's Elephant, and I'm currently the head of cinematography at Sony Picture Animation. And we are here to talk about Gary H. Lee. So what a coincidence that you are here, and we are very happy to have you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's a real privilege to have someone with like your prestige on here. Uh, I don't know if you would necessarily call it prestige yourself, but uh, some of the projects you've worked on are very impressive, especially from uh, like your first project, which we'll get into a little bit here. Uh, but it, it's very cool to have you here, and uh, we appreciate your time. Um, we usually save this for the end of the podcast, but because you're acting as co-host as well as interview subject, we have a, a, a semi-famous segment called What You Doing, where we just talk about the fun stuff we're doing away from work and just things we're doing to make life a little more palatable. Uh, so, like, one of our other co-hosts, Matt, he watches a bunch of Star Trek. I obviously watch a lot of, like, Marvel movies and read comics and play video games. Most of us do some sort of thing like that. So, Gary H. Lee, what you doing? I am learning Unreal Engine at the moment. Um, it's a game engine that is it's relatively complex, but it's kind of the future, in my opinion. Um, it's like a real-time game engine that you know deals with physical light in um, that calculates like just millions of geometry. It's super nerdy, but it's coming from a place that the industry is kind of going that way. So I'm taking the opportunity to learn it aside from that so i'm trying to do it in a way that is almost like a video game for myself uh doing as gameplay even though i'm learning something rather than actually spending the time to like play a video game so it's like why instead of playing a video game why not learn the game engine and then pick up a skill while you're spending that kind of hour doing something Aside from that, um, watching Last of Us, but very yes. far behind, very far behind to the general public. And I try to dodge all the spoilers on all my social media when I scroll through <laughs> my phones. And it's really hard. It's like, it's, it's really hard these days to, you know, I'm only three episodes in. Um, Ooh, episode three I is like so good. That's the Bill and Frank episode. That's right. Yeah, that one's my favorite so far. I, it's just so oh, yeah. unique that 
and I got super emotional watching it towards the end. Yep. And I'm like, I can, I could just totally watch this. I don't, I don't need to see the, you know, crazy <laughs> zombie slash clickers um, part of it. Yeah, that's that's, you know, we have two little ones, one uh, six year old, a year and a half. The other one's a year and a half. So having two kids give us a little bit less time to watch TV. So we're just um, last, you know, occasionally we'll do one hour here, one hour there. And so far, that's 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 what we're on. Otherwise, it's lots of Bluey and Paw Patrol. There's a part of me that thinks that Bluey is probably like running the economy of Australia at the moment. (laughs) It really... It's such a charming show. Uh, I actually love it. My wife is actually my wife's favorite show, like literally. Yes. And and yeah, no, I. It's one of those shows that I have no problem. My daughter binge watch it and watch it again and again. It just is is really sweet. All of that. Yeah, I, I literally, I think there's no one I know who has kids that's not in the whole bluey wagon. Yeah, Bluey's a, a really interesting phenomenon because you would I would never thought 20 years ago before I had kids that I'd be so obsessed with a show that is geared towards technically all ages, but mainly towards kids ages like four to eight, maybe four to ten. But I mean, it, like you said, it's so charming. And uh, I'm pretty sure my household alone has paid for like at least the, the at least one month of Ludo Studios rent because we have so many Bluey toys that my wife and I just we see them at the the retail store and we're just like they they need it not us we don't need it they need it. Oh, you're right about that. Like there are toy there are shows where my you know my my daughter will watch it be like trying to stop her from watching it. You know, there's a lot of cartoons where I feel really. I will try to like distract her to get her away from it and be like, Oh my God, this is like, this is not sophisticated information. I don't want her to take bluey is not one of them. Bluey is if she's, she wants to watch it. I'm always like, okay, just put it on. And that feels good as a parent, you know, I, I, cause you always try to like kind of manage what your kids take in. I'm sure you feel the same way. And that's actually a weird dichotomy actually thinking about it with bluey um and we will get into your resume and everything as well here in a moment um but one one weird thing with bluey is that it doesn't feel like it is in it for the merchandising like merchandising is obviously a big part of a lot of animated series but it never feels like they're putting something into the show to be like this is going to be a toy unlike anything in paw patrol or any virtually any other kids show like it never feels like they're creating something just to merchandise it. I I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there was there, there's a show that um, my daughter is has been watching lately called Crybabies. I don't know if if it's on your radar at all. I have seen a little bit of it, but I it, it's one of those shows that I think I I hear it and I'm just like I don't even want to know <laughs> if they're enjoying it. They can enjoy it, but that is the limit. Yeah, it's it's a show that really is built for merchandise and there's just a part of it that feels a little don't get me wrong i'm sure the intention of the creator is a positive place or not i don't know i can't don't quote me on it but yeah definitely there are content that 
just feels a little bit gross um, in the sense that it's, you know, beautifully eye candy, you know, render super poppy colors that is just catching, you know, little kids' attention. And then, but then the substance are, are, are relatively um, non-existent. Yeah, again, Bluey, everyone should go watch it. <laughs> yes, Bluey is an end-all be-all for great animated series. It's like Batman the Animated Series and Bluey right there. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, Gary, we are we are here to talk about you, though. We're not here to just gush about Bluey and how wonderful it is. And you have a, a, a history with animation and visual effects. So uh, give us a little bit about your, your origin story in, into the industry of uh, pre-visions and animation. So, I, I mean, I, yeah, I can, I can give a cliff, cliff note version of that. Um, I came here when I was 13 years old. I didn't speak English um, at the time and and first coming here, didn't have a lot of friends. I think I was kind of buried in comic books. And, you know, that's that's kind of like my parents start, start buying, you know, allowing me to read a ton of comic novels where when I was in Taiwan, you know, that was something that was my dad was not super excited to like kind of feed me comic books, just like the stuff that we were talking about a second ago with, you know, certain shows and feeling like, yeah, you should study and do all that. But I think it's to kind of feel that comfort before when I, you know, first came to the States. And so I used to be reading a ton of comic books. I have to say a lot of it is Japanese uh, comic books, you know, kind of manga style. Because uh, I was, to be honest, like when I was in Taiwan, I really didn't have a lot of access to the Marvel, the, you know, the American comic books. And what was really funny at the time is I would, read the American comic books and be like, wow, every, everything is so slow. It just like poses. Whereas, you know, the manga has speed lines, has like uh, big, you know, annotations. And anyway, it was like, I got really fascinated by different story that gets told through the genre of comic. And I even started drawing my comic books, uh, you know, I was illustration. Um, at some point, um, my mom was at the time working for a, for a computer store as an accountant, and she was able to get us. Uh, I got my first computer, and someone loaded a pirated version of uh, 3D Studio Max, which is a 3D software. And from that point on, I think, you know, that was also during the time that. Jurassic Park came out and it was, you know, that was really the film that made me want to be in the movie industry, just the make-believe aspect of, of what was on the screen blew my mind. And of course, the whole Star Wars history, visual effects, all of that. So I think very quickly with the 3D animated software, I was able to make a ship fly or a sphere kind of you know go toy story was 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 out at the time and and i think i shifted my um passion from uh comic books illustrations over to kind of motion art and cinema right around when i was probably 17 18 years old so 
I actually made my first animated short film when I was in Upland High School before graduation. And, and then I went to Art Center Pasadena as an illustration major. At the time, Art Center didn't really have a animation department. It was very early, you know. Um, there was not much. Like I was only I, I would sit in to senior classes because there was a few animation classes that are in the three D realm, and using those classes, I learned about you know a bunch of my senior graduating friends are applying are about to graduate. They're about to apply for jobs. And one of the professors was like, hey, you know, in Star Wars, I have a friend at Skywalker Ranch. They're looking for a previous animatic artist. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, all these senior students, they get to apply. They're graduating. It's super cool. And I think it was like during those few weeks when everyone was applying, suddenly one day, one night, I kind of woke up and go, hey, I had this like short film I did in high school. Can I, I think I'm just going to take that and try to you know, see if I just apply with everybody, see what happens. And it's really from that, I, you know, I think the animation had what uh, the animatic team at Lucasfilm at the time needed. And, and that was actually what got me the job at Lucasfilm. And I was, um, I was very lucky. It was a kind of one of those right place to right time scenario. I happen to know 3D animation during that time that there wasn't a lot of people that knew it. And it was just a niche that, that um, yeah, I was hired. Um, I was 19 years old, and that's the beginning of my journey um, at, at Lucasfilm, Star Wars. And really, it was, it was there that, that I, met, I meet a bunch of probably the most talented people I know still today. Um, I'm talking about you know, concept artists, designers like Ryan Church, you know, like Eric Temin, like um, Doc Chang. I met Doc Chang, who, you know, was art director on Star Wars Episode One. Um, and also within that group, it was really all my peers were kind of the kind of the first I was is. I think you will be too cocky to say that is the first group of kind of like the previous people that end up um, building out kind of the the the, uh, the industry of previous in Hollywood today, but they really became that way. You know, I have my peers would go and start previous companies such as third floor which is the biggest previous company today that did all the marvel films and halo entertainment which is a huge previous company that does you know uh, life of pie and um you know dc all sorts of visual effects driven films um it was happened to be the right place right time to be with the group of people that end up now becoming kind of the the people who are setting the standard of previous in the, in the industry today. Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling, but, um, Oh no, you, this is all just super interesting. And like the, the fact that you, you just happen to fall into, uh, a, not necessarily fall into, but you created something that got you a job to work on a star Wars film as your first job in the industry is just so cool. 
and like say what have people say what they will about uh, attack of the clones but like for you as a person who worked on that film i'm sure that's just like the coolest film ever because that's <laughs> literally where you 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 uh what is it cut your teeth or whatever the, the turn of phrase is uh but like um it's it's just such a cool concept like i could never imagine just being like oh i i talk somewhat for a living like let me just go submit my resume to npr and then like oh hey yeah you get a job you can be a host on our airwaves like what no i i could never imagine just falling into something like skywalker ranch i mean it, it, just it truly, uh, being like shoot i mean shoot your shot yeah it truly felt like you know in in, in a lot of ways winning a lottery for that very little um kind of the universe of a boy who grew up watching Star Wars, being a fan and able to make the leap and actually be at the ranch, you know, at the main house where, you know, George Lucas works and to be part of that. And that is really special, but don't, but I will have to say, don't shortchange what you just said, because when I was there, it would, you know, the people that were also hired within that group are a bunch of young people from different parts of the U.S. that are really either in animation school or in art school or just trying things and being excited about visual effects, being excited about visual storytelling through animation. And none of it had like a track record, really, because the in industry really hasn't even formed, you know, in order to have like a career path to get there. And it was after, you know, it was really after Lucasfilm. I moved back to LA. I went to DreamWorks Animation. That even when I was at DreamWorks Animation, they had just started. Um, I, I got to participate in their first 3D animated film. And prior to that point, they were all doing 2D animated films, such like such as like Sinbad. Uh, what is it? Uh, didn't they do uh, Prince of Egypt and um... Prince of Egypt, Sinbad, films as such, and that was uh, El Dorado. Was that another one of theirs? Yes, yes, and those were before my DreamWorks time, and that's why it's a little bit hard to recollect. Recollect, but the industry was pivoting because of the Pixar wave of the Toy Story of the Bugs Life and all of that, and DreamWorks had done their first ants from like their Northern California studio PDI. And now the LA studio is making their first 3D animated film, which is Over the Hedge. And even at that time, I would go into the studio and be hired as a layout artist in animation world that that's called layout. Uh, because traditionally all the layout were done in 2D. So they were almost like laying out a shot. And so they were still calling digital artists, like layout artists. And most of my peers were much older than me. You know, there were people that's been in the industry for decades. And I was a very young kid. And the reason why I was able to be there, just because I, I knew this new way of, you know, helping to visualize a film, that many people that had to learn from the ground up, you know, relearn, so they had to abandon their 2D skills and then now go and learn a 3D software in order to do that job. It was a really interesting transition. And I felt like I just kind of fell into that at that time. 
And I, I think you raise a really great point that can transition us into a little bit of why you're here today, which is you are the cinematographer for the upcoming net. Well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll should it should have come out by now. Uh, the magician's oh. elephant. I keep wanting to say the magician's nephew <laughs> because Narnia books, but it's the magician's elephant. And I even wrote it in my notes, the magician's nephew, Jesus, uh, the magician's elephant, which is a new animated feature coming to Netflix, which, uh, I think Netflix has had a, a really good run of animated features. Uh, and so I, I'm really excited to see what this one is, especially now getting to talk to someone involved with the film. Uh, so I would ask, how does finding cinematography and animation differ from what would happen in live action? They have becoming closer and closer in the essence of the work. I think um, for the longest time as a previous artist, or, you know, now I'm, I've got a title of you know, kind of the cinematography, digital cinematography is because the industry is heading that way. But prior to this point, it is actually hard for me to tell people what I do. <laughs> I tell people I'm a previous artist, a layout artist, an animatic artist, all of which are essentially the same thing. It's just they're being called differently under different contexts. In animation world, a lot of it is layout. In live action, previous world is pre-visualization. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it also uh, different stages in the production process? So like layout would maybe be like step one, whereas animatic might be step two and three actually no they all kind of begin to blur no yes i i, I would say it's interesting now previous seems to be the first stage and then for animation films they will have a they, they could have a previous stage and then it will go into layout stage which previous is more exploratory you're looking at what the what's on the script what came out of the story reel um what and then once you get your 3d characters once you get your 3d sets you're starting to scout in that space with a camera that's like a vir virtual camera and you're finding opportunities a a, vi a a visual language to tell that story and and sometimes as you're kind of molding um how you want to tell that story it gets more and more refined and you start producing shots that go goes into it's like, okay, now we kind of know what we can do in this space. Now let's shoot this sequence. And then the, whole, the, the actual shooting of the sequence process lands into kind of the layout process, which, some, which oftentimes these days it goes into, you know, your animation studio or in, under the context of, um, you know, Magician's Elephant, we have a partner studio in Australia uh, co-animal logic, which, you know, they, they've done a lot of work, you know, Lego movie, Peter Rabbit, you know, etc. And they were the kind of our vendor partner studio that took on uh, kind of the back end of the production for Magician's Elephant, in which, so I had a team in LA, a very small team of previous members, that's Morgan Kelly, Brian Magner, uh, Don Rich are the three previous artists I have here in LA that we shot about 30% of the film while the rest were shot in, actually in Australia with Animal Logic uh, with an entirely different team under 
uh, Ned Walker and Fabian uh, Muller. And my job become someone who kind of oversees the whole process to make sure that the execution is, is at quality and is serving the intention of kind of the visual language we want to have for the picture. Um, you know, Josh, I have to confess that it's really going from production to production that there is a different production workflow that they decide how they want to utilize previous, how they want to utilize layout, how much, um, how much duration of that production lives in which stage. And it's all, it, it's quite organic, uh, these days. Um, you know, right now I'm at Sony picture animation on a new film called K-pop demon hunter. And that film itself is going to try to do previous in a very different way. So the more and more I begin to tell people, I said, I, I'm, I will share that, you know, I'm, my job is there to kind of help the director to visually tell that story. And, and, and then within that, to kind of come up with the plan of, of how we want to shoot this film. And I think with all those responsibilities, then, then, then the industry starts to recognize it as, oh, then it's a digital cinematography. When we were speaking, or um, was it Catherine was the one who connected us? Um, I'm, I'm spacing on her name. Um, when she gave me kind of like your bio and everything, she talked about how uh, you use a digital camera that stimulates existing physical area to kind of create uh, a sense of space for your shots and for your, your set pieces in the animation. Can you talk about that process of how you use the digital camera? Sure. Sure. I think because the sophistication of technology today, you can, you can really actually model a digital camera to a actual physical camera. That's today a film camera, whether it's coming from red, RE, 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, you can actually dial in a digital camera that replicates what you see out of the field of view out of like a real physical camera. So a lot of times um, when I am in the, have to, having the responsibility to, um, to be the head of previous or head of cinematography for a show, it's always about serving the story. So we'll look at the character, the opportunities of that story and trying to de deconstruct it and to um, think about what is the best camera that we want to, sh to use to shoot it, whether it's the different aspect ratio, 16 by nine, 239, do we want a widescreen cinema scope? And, um, and on top of that, to, you know, for the example of Magician's Elephant, there will be languages of the characters that are kind of op opposing to each other, such as in Magician's Elephant, it was Peter and Belna. So when we're in their bedroom or when we're, in, when we're in their apartment, we will shoot them in kind of a opposing composition with a background that feels pretty flat, that doesn't have a lot of dynamic perspective that really kind of gave it like that restrictive feel versus uh, another set of character that you want to feel the warmth that we would stage the camera and shoot them more dynamically uh, 
camera is not going to be so formal. There's going to be more perspective lines in the background. We'll be talking. We'll be shooting with over the show, over the shoulder of the character instead of they're just like clean single when you know you're doing the close-ups. Um, it's all those small choices that um, that end up making some sort of like this camera bible that that you you kind of uh, establish, and that becomes information that you can share with the entire team. So no matter which artist that is doing a certain shot, they understand that there's an intention behind it and trying to go there instead of just looking at a shot from a compositional standpoint and going, hey, I'm just going to try to frame every shot as like the most dynamic, most beautiful shot possible. Um, which, you know, sometimes I feel like watching a film like Michael Bay's film, you get the every single shot is so dynamic. Every single shot is so, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there's so much going on. I always have to, and by the way, uh, Michael Bay came from Art Center, which is a school that I went to too. And I always feel that if you take any of his shots out of context, you'll be like, wow, that's a really well executed shot. And I have to applaud him for it. But the, the, the thing is that sometimes when you cut 10 of those together, you don't know which one you're supposed to pay attention to because they're all just as strong. Where, like in the film, I think you have to respect the highs and lows. You have to give certain shots, they're, not to make it boring, but they're there to serve a purpose. So when a different moment that you're supposed to have, you know, a huge emotion, um, that certain camera move actually stands out and resonate with you emotionally. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but yes, we have a lot of latitude to uh, replicate like a physical camera um, in the animation world. And for Magician's Elephant, the director Wendy Rogers really wanted a like a live action sensibility of our camera. So it also speaks to we don't have a lot of helicopter shots. A, a lot of cameras are moving the way that is realistic possible for a human being to operate that camera right it's not something that is that is like carried by a drone where you see in a lot of shows these days that i think it's really cool you know if if there's an intention behind it that makes it work but in terms of magician's elephant it's really trying to give that grounded look um to the film I think you can really see that uh, having watched the trailer a couple times now, um, you, you can kind of get that sense that there there is this sense of groundedness to the movie because, among other things, the elephant does look almost photorealistic. Like there's little animation exaggerations that you will see in most animated features, but like it's the characters around the elephant that are more exaggerated and animated. And the elephant is kind of like the, the central point. And therefore, it's kind of like the grounding wire for the the eccentricities of everything around it. No, I'm really happy. I'm glad that you feel that way. And speaking about the elephant, you know, the T-Rex or something like that is a good reference in the way that when we're first, you know, looking at the magician elephant, we go, we want a frame for the humans in this world. So therefore, a lot of the elephant shots, we make sure that he's kind of bigger than our frame, right? It's kind of cropped, um, just like, the illusion that you get, you know, when you first first watching in Jurassic Park, where the T Rex is always bigger than the frame, that really gave you the the sense of the scale. 
um, I, I, I do feel that the later Jurassic Park, a lot of film, uh, uh, you know, there's different approaches where sometimes you see a huge dinosaur, but it's perfectly framed within that, within within your frame. And somehow it's just not as impactful as something that, you know, seems a little bit cropped. So I just want to highlight that. Sense of scale is something that's kind of lost its art, it seems, because like uh, Gareth Edwards, uh, another Star Wars guy, really has a great sense of scale. You look at his Godzilla oh movie, God, you look yes. at Rogue One. Anytime there's something massive, you you get that sense of scale. And then if you go into any of the Godzilla sequels, especially like Godzilla versus Kong, like nothing feels like extraordinary. Like it's all just there's a couple shots for scale, but mostly they seem more like for 3D audiences. Cause like I remember in uh there's a couple shots where like the cop the sci-fi vehicle like flies through Godzilla's mouth or next to Godzilla and you're like, oh dang, they're huge. But it, it really seems more almost like Iron Man flying through New York and the Avengers than it really does like a moment where you really get the sense of scale yeah. of what's happening and what's going on around them. No, that's you're you're totally spot on. I think something as just even how you compose that shot, like what the sizing of a character, the sizing of the creature, the sizing of that giant Pacific Rim, whatever, small things like that really speaks to how a viewer takes in that experience. And we pay extra, we pay a lot of attention to things like that. Something, something that my job is, yes, I pay a lot of attention to, oh, even the height of your camera, like how, whether you're shooting a person on uh, the camera height is at the shoulder or to their face or the waist, all those things changes how you feel, how big that person is, right? Like you want to shoot something here, someone heroic, you put the camera a little bit lower. So you feel like you're looking up at him and the horizon is much lower. All those things are tricks that we are just trained to um, view from like, over a century of cinematic experience. It's like, it's wired in us to kind of feel a certain way when we watch it. All of that is just, is, is a language that, that is, is quite subliminal, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's there for sure. So one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you talked about how each project in each studio is kind of different yet organic. Um, is that because of like, software that's available because i know like disney is really proud of their water software where it's like almost photorealistic at this point but then you also have sony animation who now has this uh license on the the frame rate kind of animation that they did with spider-verse that we're seeing getting mimicked and stuff like the new ninja turtles movie uh puss in boots utilized it a lot in dreamworks with their action sequences uh so is it is it more technology based as to why these uh productions are um just so different or is it like you said where it's still just kind of a growing industry where people don't necessarily have a blueprint as to how each production should be done kind of like how marvel has their blueprint of like okay you guys just shoot the shots and we'll do all the the visual work you don't worry about the action sequences because we've got that handled my existence in the past 20 years of being in the industry there are there is some of that in the sense of you know when first you know like a bug's life versus ants or perhaps like shark tail versus finding nemo or it's like somehow the technologies is like oh hey we can make fur for the first time now like our next film there's going to be furry characters right 
we can do this. And then like technology is kind of helping to drive the type of stories studio wants to tell for a moment, I think, in the earlier stages of, of my involvement in industry. But I think it today is gotten to a point where you can kind of do anything you want through technology. Then it really becomes an artistic choice from the creators, the directors that are um, that are driving that particular vision. I think, you know, my my understanding of Spider Verse, there was so much experimentation that goes into the look of the film, right? Like what kind of filter we want, what kind of um, what is their version of um, out of focus, right? It, it it has that comic book, you know, kind of moraying effect, and and it's it, it those are the things that that now with technology can do and it becomes just is is a matter of choice and subjective choices from the filmmaker. I do think that even I mean even on the film I'm on right now, um, without speaking too much about it because we're quite early, I almost feel that there is a conversation about what is the style, right? What is the style of that movie? And and then so a lot of it is like the collaboration between the production studio that can actually execute those shots that can try different effects, you know, like I think something like Spider-Verse, something like Mitchell versus Machines. There's a lot of line work, that cartoony thing that is also embedded in like a physical 3D environment that you're kind even the Ninja Turtle trailer, which looks super refreshing. Now it's like the, the you're no longer chasing the most realistic water anymore, right? Because that's been done and that's easy. Now it's like, what, how are we going to do it in a way that is fresh, that feels like someone just scribbled, you know? Like I was studying a few frames of Ninja Turtle. My friend, um, Ken Seki, who's a, have, have cinematography on that picture, super nice guy, super talented. And I'm, I was studying a few frames from the trailer that they're out of focus. It's almost like it just becomes a looser, looser drawing. You see that a lot in the the cityscape yes. where like some of the, the lines are, yeah, that, that I thought that was super and cool. And I, I love that. My p- participation to that is actually separated from the stylization, which is how we're going to, um, how we want to compose, how we want to move the camera. Why do we want to frame our characters a certain way? And then the stylization comes from the second step, which is the production designer and the you know, the creative, uh, the creative team, and then the, the production studio that can continue to refine it into kind of like a style, a stylized look. That's the partnership I'm seeing. So you do have aspirations to become a director. Obviously anyone in, in the industry would like to have more and more control over their artistic vision. Uh, you see a lot of cinematographers as well, kind of go from cinematography to directors how is that step usually taken or for you, how do you see that step going for you? I think starting the industry at first, it was, it started as a passion to try to tell story on a visual level, whether it's through comic books or through just having a few low geo 
3D character that walks around and do a few things and you make your short film that way. And at some point you get into, you got a job, you're at a studio working. And, and for me, that becomes working in studio becomes my film school. That's where I'm like the sponge that just takes in, okay, wow, on this production, they're executing it this way. On that production, they're shooting it this way. Something I learned from Kung Fu Panda is very different than something I learned from Life of Pi, working with Aang, something that, you know, and all of it becomes kind of master classes from one production to another. And oftentimes, for myself, I think I was, I was one of those very naive filmmakers who just go, hey, I have a camera, I can go out and just shoot, you know, my own project. And I had done a couple of short films and you know, on my Instagram, I recently just kind of posted my experience on shooting my third short film, Hector Corp, with my roommate at the time, who's a producer, like a commercial producer. And we just decided to shoot this short film at a soundstage in Hollywood. Getting together the money, shooting it, you realize, wow, you have to hire everyone and you're paying, you know, you're paying everybody, which is what you're supposed to do. But film is expensive. It's, a, it's almost like painting with the most expensive brush. Someone has, you know, used that analogy and I think it's quite fitting. And and you and for that project I was doing all the visual effects myself. And you realize, wow, it's a huge undertaking. And I think through these small projects, you learn filmmaking is a is a team effort, is a collaborative process, is something that you don't just do by yourself. Whereas perhaps a painter, you know, a comic book artist, not a different form of art, you one could go and get your paintbrush and all that, and you can complete your painting as one individual. But when you're making a film, you have you have your actors, you have your crew, you have you need a space, you have you need a location, all of that, I guess where I'm going is is that I've attempted, I've done a few different projects to really learn what it means to kind of make your own project, kind of a poor man's way of producing your own project. And I think the next step is to understand how to um, do that in the, with the studio, with a bigger palette, to have that conversation, to to have that partnership with the studio to do that. Cause as a, as a filmmaker to do your own project, it can be, it, be, it can be a very challenging experience. I have done, I feel like I'm kind of going over the place. Um, you're asking a question that is, is good, is personal in the way that I'm also trying to understand what it means to take the next step, you know, to be a, to the, to, for the transition from a cinematographer to a director. Um, and out of the experience of doing, at this point, four short films, one of which is called um, Aiden, that was once, that was actually a pitch to a feature film. It was like a short film concept. You gotta learn how to pitch. You gotta learn how to summarize your thing down to something that's very digestible for a studio exec and something that's quite catchy that they're willing to put the resources behind you to make that project happen. And I have to say, 
it really has to be a project that you're very, very passionate about. Because as a director at a studio, it's, there's definitely a lot of pressure um, when, when there's a lot of resources being put in the project. Following up on that, though, I, I do have a couple questions that popped into my head because uh, one of the things I did want to bring up is animation as an art form, as serious cinematic filmmaking storytelling, not just, oh, it's animation, it's for kids. Um, I, I don't believe that ethos is true. I think especially like with the award ceremonies, like they they tend to lean more towards the all family, all ages friendly movies and like we've gone away from things like cool world because they flopped so hard because grownups back then didn't want to watch animation. But uh, as a generation that grew up on a lot of animation, we had stuff like Batman, the animated series. We had some like really compelling stuff in the mid two thousands with uh, avatar, the last airbender. We've had a lot of anime influences, a lot of manga influences come in that have really like legitimized animation as a storytelling platform. Uh, Attack on Titan is another really good example sure. of depressing grown up themes in an animated feature. Um, so how do you think the industry grows beyond just the current? Is it kid friendly for animation? OK, but also I think uh, kind of part two of the question is I think animation does have a little bit more freedom than a lot of live action stuff does right now because it feels like almost anything live action has to be tied into a franchise if it's going to get any kind of uh green light after the pitch so uh could you talk a little bit about how you feel the industry could grow in animation uh, or is growing in animation and how do you feel that it, is there more freedom in animation because there's not uh, a push to tie it into a franchise at the moment Industry's view of animation is changing, and in a good way, definitely. I'm super fascinated by Netflix series, the Love, Death, and Robot, right? That is something that is just tailored for adults. And that was something that would have never happened because people just associate animation as kids-friendly and um, something that is for kids. Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pinocchio or... The, you know, Coraline, you know, there's some animations that go to pretty, you know, pretty moody, dark places where now that's no longer like shocking. I think, I think that's, that's a really, really good um, direction that we're going as an industry. Now I, I understand why I was hesitant to talk about my own project for a second because Aiden was a short film concept that I made that was a pitch to a feature film. It's a live action and with live action film that's very kind of action driven sci-fi. And when trying to pitch that as a feature film, you very quickly realize now the live action film world are divided into just as you said you have your big blockbusters and then you have your micro budget blumhouse horror films right and a lot of the mid-budget films people are just not picking up or in addition to that is the original content original content in live action is actually very hard 
um, at least from my experience. Aiden ended up actually got, you know, I win probably about nine awards on that short film. And during the time, right after the film festivals, he was actually picked up to turn to a feature. And I have financiers, you know, that, that came in. Eventually, that didn't pan out due to the fact that um, our financiers' previous film did not perform very well. And I think that was you know, that that contributed to um, us not able to make the film. So I think when you were asking me about the transition from cinematography to directing, a lot of times I think about that project and there's a little bit of regret that comes from that. Um, so that was so, it was also interesting then your follow-up question talking about the differences of animation and live action. I do think animation people are taking more chances with, um, I, I wouldn't say taking a lot of chances. I think the industry tends to want to play the safe bet, right? Like something that's based on a successful book, something that's based on a successful franchise, something that had a really a huge hit on the first one. Now let's start making the sequels. All the films, I was just looking at the most anticipated animated films of 2023. You have your Ninja Turtles, you have your Spider-Verse 2, you have your, like, going down the list is all sequels, is all existing franchise. Mm -hmm. And that's why Magician's Elephant is so refreshing, because Magician's Elephant is kind of original content, although it was still based on a children's book, right? So there is some, it's still kind of a content that derived from something. And I think my personal take as a filmmaker, as someone who is in this in this world of storytelling, I like to participate in original content because you get to do you get to kind of participate in setting up the the palette, the the places to go, a language for that for that project. And once you kind of set that up, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be able to change later on, um, but you start to frame it for what that franchise would look like, you know, um, Kung Fu Panda 1, 2, 3, Toy Story 1, 2, 3. None of them are like, whoa, Toy Story 2 looks totally different than Toy Story 1. <laughs> that doesn't happen because you kind of know what that is. So I do think is animation and, and live action. First, to answer, answer to your question, yes, I do think animation industry is changing. I do think animation is becoming more universal. Animation really got its own category on Oscar doing like the Kassenberg times um, that there's a push to go, we need a category that's animation, right? Um, but I do think that it needs to have, it needs to have, I would, I, would, I would love to see that, you know, there's any awards that's just like a Oscar for the animation industry that talk about best and character animation, best uh, layout, best, you know, etc. Um, I think, you know, for Oscar or for, uh, I think eventually, I'd like to see them just all become different mediums for stories, rather than really having a huge distinction of this is a live action project, this is an animation project. Yeah, and I mean with with the uh, the special effects stuff going on with like 
Marvel with every release coming out, they get called out for more bad practices with how they treat their their VFX departments and the the people they license out to. Uh, it almost feels like with a lot of them, like you could have just made this an animated feature and you, the whole thing would look pretty seamless. People wouldn't be complaining about a floating head doesn't look great or <laughs> a MODOK doesn't look great. I remember, um, but sorry, I remember on Life of Pi, the visual effects company that made Life of Pi went bankrupt after making Life of Pi. And there's something to say about that industry when some, when they can be doing so well on one area but then um, as a business you suffer so much i do think the whole visual effects animation side of the entertainment industry does sometimes get a shorter end of the stick yeah like i I just so much of it same thing as avatar i think a lot of it is yes there's character driven performances that have motion captured there's also a ton of animators fixing everything afterwards that I think all of it needs to be recognized and, and applaud because it takes a village to make a film. So this is actually more of like a genuine personal question. Like maybe I'll even cut this from the episode. I'm, I'm not sure with your, your pitch of Aiden. Um, did you pitch that? Uh, you don't have to go like specifics, but did you pitch that to like a streamer or a, a full on like feature production studio? Because it seems like streamers are kind of where more for lack of a better word, indie content can go and kind of thrive. Cause like one of my favorite movies that came out, uh, I believe during the pandemic or maybe it was just before the pandemic was over the moon on Netflix, which is uh, another Netflix original. Um, it didn't get a theatrical release, but, um, like I said, Netflix has kind of been on a roll with some really good animated features. Apple TV plus has had some really good animated features. Uh, so I'm just genuinely curious, like, is going to a streamer something you have considered for some of your projects or did you actually do that? For Aiden, I was, I was fine. You know, I was, we had the funds to make the feature at one point. So for a few years, that that was actually my full-time job. That was also the time that Netflix was the only streamer. And when it didn't happen, I when I was uh, I started family, I went back, not went back. I I kind of started doing previs again, and for a moment it felt like, you know, I was trying so hard to do something that didn't happen, and but then very quickly realized, oh my god, how much I still love doing previs how much I still love being at that process of the, of the filmmaking. So I think since I, you know, since Aiden, I really haven't approached streamer or studios again, because I would just, I was going from Vivo to Magician's Elephant and right now uh, to Sony that these are all really kind of, exciting projects that was filling my artistic, um, you know, muse. So I think my long to short of it is yes, I am taking Aiden and other ideas out again. I really just haven't done it yet. 
and I and there's a part of me that does feel that today, now is years after I had that experience. Now there is about five different streamers, and there's so many places looking for content. I really need to just, you know, go out there with my agent and and have that conversation. Uh, a lot has happened during all doing all of this, and I'm being. You have a way to get much out of me um, that I'm sharing, which is all good. Uh, pandemic was a big thing that, you know, some production was shut down. And it was a time that, you know, everyone wasn't sure how to deal with it. And, you know, I had, I started a pandemic I started Magician's Elephant at the first week of the lockdown. So during that time, I from like I felt extremely safe to be working with Wendy Rogers, the director who I've known before. I've had, you know, she was a visual effects producer on another project I was on. Julia Pister, a producer that many has praised before I come on to the project. It just felt like that was the place I wanted to be. And I wasn't pitching. I wasn't trying to direct or to do anything. Anything that was a very that that was the environment that I felt like this is what I want. Like I don't. I'm not thinking about anything else. I want to make sure that I'm just giving the most to Magician's Elephant. So I think at some point now, you know, I end up making the whole film in my sweatpants, and Magician's Elephant was something that. I am having a really special experience out of due to many reasons, and it's also a beautiful film. Something that we're all very proud of. I guess to your answer, I am gonna take, you know, my projects out again in the after after this project I'm on, and and I am doing preparations for that. Yeah. I wish you the best of luck. I. I have really enjoyed this talk and I, I hope to be able to someday be like, I talked to that guy. I, I interviewed him on my podcast. You can, you can go listen to it. It's a whole different craft, like being on a project, ex- executing a film versus selling a film, trying to pitch a film is, is two different. Skills. Oh, I'm sure. And definitely is something that I'm learning. Especially to a room full of people that are simply sitting there listening to where's, where's the money hook? Where's the money hook? <laughs> Because they want that ROI. They want that return on investment. There's definitely a lot of that, for sure. So I, I have one more question for you. Um, we'll, we'll swing it back to the magician's elephant. I, the magician's elephant. I'm not going to say the nephew <laughs> again. Um, you are clearly a storyteller. You are someone that wants to tell stories. Uh, as a cinematographer, how do you scratch that storytelling itch? Uh, is it in collaboration with the director to set up a shot? Or is it more, are you a little bit more independent in those sort of things? Oh, it's always about collaborating with the director. It's always about, um, you know, speaking to different parts of that, uh, different arms of that production, either from with the collaboration with production designer, the editor. Um, on Magician's Elephant, it was Max Boas, who's a production designer, and Yuri, um, who's an art director you kind of want to help each other out in order to have the most kind of efficient way to work. And the thing about 
Wendy Rogers, who had a lot of visual effects producing experience, she knew exactly what Prebiz is. So it was a very easy experience to to do on, on this film. Because Prebiz, as, as you can tell by this point, before the war cinematography comes in, a lot of people don't know what it is. You know, like sometimes I would even, my parents, even for the longest time, didn't know what I do. I would tell, they would think that I'm an animator, right? Uh, but in animation, there's just, there's 10 different professions, you know, in within that. So I think what I find graphic, the satisfaction these days that I get is try to do, try to try to plan and think smart for the production, for how you're going to help them to visually tell that story. And what does that mean? It means, um, you know, I'll start scouting in very early stages, putting these video game-like characters throughout every part of Botis, which is a town that we shoot in. And, you, and then Wendy has this great idea of trying to build the entire town as one set piece. So you have your opera house, you have your theater, you have your opera house, you have your uh, King's Palace, you have Peter and Belna's apartment, you have the bridge, you have the cathedral. All of that town is like put together under the kind of the description of how it was described in the original content, which is the book, right? And Max and Max Boas with the production, with, with the, with the art team end up building something like that. And then I will have to go in there really quickly to start put planting the camera and the characters in different parts of town to be like, oh, is the archway feel too big? Is the fountain feels too small for the elephant or is too big for Peter? We start like very, we want to have as many back and forth as possible, as quickly as possible. So you're not having to make those changes down the line where it becomes much, much more costly, right? And then also very quickly trying to provide some sort of uh, visual language to go, okay, when we're in the palace, we want to try to shoot everything in more centralized composition, something that's more formal, you know, the king will give him like the bigger than the frame close-ups. For the countess, it will be something that's much more elegant, more reserved. And you start kind of documenting this visual, this 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 camera guide, the deconstructing of that source material, and then making them into visual pieces, and able to communicate those visual pieces for the rest of the people who's going to execute all the shots and have all the execution to have intentions behind it. To me, is extremely satisfying. So I get a lot of pleasure of storytelling coming from that these days. Um, I think earlier years when I was an artist, sometimes you kind of focus on your portion of the shots that you're building and you're not really thinking globally on as, as the entire film. And, you know, as the head of previous, now you're thinking about the entire film from begin to end as one single journey to have that cohesive visual language, yet it's still different um for every character for every relationship for how you want to feel in certain environments and if your viewers can respond to these things that you plant and have that emotion that you're trying to get get out of them uh be resonant i i actually think 
cinematography is probably one of the funnest job you can have. And the storytelling aspect of it, yes, is to help tell that story on a visual level. So I feel like I'm doing that on a daily basis. Um, on my own personal project, it's about writing script, writing stories, treatments, brainstorming, thinking about different ideas. And some of them you can execute yourself. Some of them are things that you become pitches. And listening to, you know, audiobooks or reading a reading different stories, getting you in, in getting immerse yourself in storytelling, all of that, you know, scratches the storytelling itch. So I feel very fulfilled, even though I am not in the director's seat at the moment. I don't know if that answers your very last question. No, it definitely does. And, and Gary H. Lee, I appreciate so much your time, uh, your, your answers, very, very eloquent, very insightful. Um, would love to have you on again for future projects or again, if you just feel like talking nerd stuff. Um, one question I did forget to ask you when we were doing the what you do and stuff is what was your favorite manga or anime that you grew up on? You know, I really liked the very first one that got me into manga anime is definitely is Dragon Ball. You know, Dragon Ball is the, is of course, is, yes, exactly <laughs> into it. You're, it's that era, yeah. And I have to say, you know, the later I get, I actually like for a while it was Naruto, and and actually Hunter Hunter is the one that stuck with me for a long time. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure or Hunter Hunter. I don't know. I just feel like certain f for a while, there are comic books that it's like, Oh my God, the drawing style is super cool. I really want to like draw like that. I want to learn the craft of doing that specific art. And I think as you get more mature, you, you, you care more about the story and the layers of that story and then the layers of that world. And it felt to me that Hunter Hunter was something that I always just was blown away by different places that is taking me. So is, you know, the admiration for Jurassic Park and Matrix and Star Wars, all those films. And later on, you know, I become more uh, really fascinated by like Stanley Kubrick, you know, like The Shining, The Clockwork Orange, Formula Jacket. Some of it, your taste, you know, kind of evolves as you grow as an artist. And I don't know if that means more sophisticated or it just means that you have a different taste all of which it is what it is. Art is art, taste change, all of it is acceptable. There, there's no right answer in art. So Gary, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, would you mind uh, giving out your social medias so people can kind of check out your stuff that you post? Sure, I have, my website is garyhlee.com and my um, Instagram is gary.h.lee. That's my Instagram. It's, there's not a lot of stuff on there yet. I'm kind of feeling like I need to um, participate more in the in the social media land. We'll see how we'll see how that goes. That that's a full time job in itself. I it's it's difficult. I tell you. I really appreciate um, having me to just chat and talk, and you know there are parts of it I wasn't ready for, but um, but I hope that was okay. Um, Thank you so much. Oh, no, that was great. Yeah. Thanks again, Gary. And thanks everyone for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Josh underscore scar. You can follow the podcast at talking smack pod. 
please join our Discord. It's in the episode description as well as the link in our uh, tweets and posts for this episode. Uh, you can email us your thoughts on anything in nerd culture, animation. If you liked what Gary had to say, or if you're uh, an aspiring artist, uh, let us know what you thought of Gary's story and what he's doing and how that might inspire you. Uh, thanks to Kate Twilly. I looked you up. Kate Twilly is the one who connected us at 24PR. Uh, thanks to Leo Allen for our musical themes. Beppo for our original avatars. Retro Ale Studios for our Ricky avatar. Please like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. And most importantly, thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. Watch Star Trek. loves T-Smack. I love T-Smack. Is it true? Mm-hmm. I do, I do. Ooh.